as we go through it, we see a couple of things. One, the evidence of who Jesus is becomes more and more substantiated. And then we also see the disciples' reaction, and we kind of go, how come you guys are so thick-headed? But then we need to take account for the fact that we have two things. One, they had a little love, which is faith. God has given us faith, so it's easier for us to see who Jesus is. And the other is that we are seeing him from this side of the resurrection, and everything changes seeing him from that side of the resurrection. We're going to take a look at something that's significant in his ministry, although it is a very private revealing. So we're going to start with Matthew chapter 17, with verse 1, and it says this. Six days later, now the six days later is Peter, along with the other disciples, had made the statement that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's taken a period of time, and now it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And so he only took three of the 12 disciples. Peter, who seems to be the kind of the leader of the group, at least the one who jumps out and speaks first. And John and James, who are brothers, they're also called sons of thunder which either means their dad was a blowhard, or they are. I tend to think, by the way, it says that they were those loud and boisterous guys, and they were brothers, which shows how Jesus transforms people. Because in the Gospel of John, and in the three letters of John, John is anything but boisterous. He refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. When he wrote the three letters, it's little children. So he was always written as meek and whatever. And when he wrote Revelation, he simply transcribed what Jesus communicated to him through the visions. And so we see that Jesus takes three, these three, is if you will, inner circle, and he's going to show them something different and unique that are not going to be seen by the other disciples. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. So we see Jesus revealing himself to Peter, James, and John, more than just human, but that he contains all that God can put in a man in his glory. And so his face shines like the sun. It, it radiates light. The scriptures talk about the various glories of heaven. And it talks about the, the glory of the sun being one and the glory of the moon being another. The moon would emit light. Light, but the moon reflected the light of the sun. That's why its glory is different. And Jesus is radiating that glory that was within him, that is part of the Godhead. 
When we reflect the glory of God, we do just that. We reflect the glory of God. We are like the moon, and Jesus is like the sun. He emits the light. We reflect the light, or at least we ought to. All too often, we're kind of like what, and I always find this as an interesting new moon. The new moon is when the moon is dark. I always find that's an odd expression. But oftentimes in our Christian life, we go reflecting God's glory either not at all, or a quarter moon, or a half a moon, and on occasion, maybe a full moon. But we are to reflect his glory. But Jesus is transfigured. He is shown to be who he is. And he's showing his three disciples the true inners of who he is, that he is the Godhead, that he is transfigured, and he shines as light, as white light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, there's an expression we have in, in the U.S. that I always find kind of odd. It's called, I wish I were a fly on the wall to hear what they say. And I think that's a kind of a crazy statement. Because first off, every time I see a fly in the, in the room, I want to smack it. The last thing I want to be is a fly on the wall because somebody's going to be out to get me. And the second, I'm not too sure flies understand what people are saying. So even if I were a fly on the wall, I would be as obsequious as anybody else as what's going on. But I would have loved to hear that conversation. I can guarantee you they weren't talking about the weather. I can, I can guarantee you they kept not saying, man, it's cold up here on this high mountain. I bet they were in deep conversation. And I would have loved to have known what they were talking about. If I care in heaven, and I suspect I won't because there'll be so many other great things. One of the things I would probably go up to Moses or Elijah and say, hey, what were you guys talking about? That would be a unique experience. And Peter, he gives a response. Peter always does. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It's happening. I mean, you're shining bright as the sun. We got Moses, the lawgiver, or at least that's what everybody calls him. He was the law transmitter because it was God's law. But Moses gets all the credit. He reveals to us what God, the initial Genesis and the Exodus and the redemption and all that. He tells us all about that. And there's Elijah, the primo prophet, and all the things that Elijah did. And he goes, wow, we got Jesus. We got Moses. We got Elijah. Maybe we ought to just camp out here. So he goes, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I bet you didn't catch anything that I find a little humorous. Peter is not a builder or an architect. Peter's a fisherman. I'm not too sure even if I wanted him to build a tabernacle, I would want him to build a tabernacle. Because it would probably end up looking like a boat. But Peter is caught up. Man, I can change my profession. I can stop being a fisherman, and I can be a, a builder of tabernacles. Now, I'm not too sure what type of tabernacle Peter's talking about. 
There is a tabernacle that is kind of like a temporary dwelling, a tent. It's for temporary purposes. And there's even a holy day that recognizes it. It's called the Feast of Booths. When the Jews would come to Jerusalem and they would build out of tree branches and whatever, kind of little huts, and the family would dwell in it, kind of looking forward to the kingdom. And so those were temporary dwellings. And Paul, in his letters, will talk about that these bodies are temporary. They are tabernacles. So he may be talking about, well, let's build a temporary dwelling because it's just kind of good to hang out here. Or, and I hope this isn't the case, but it's a little more sinister, let's build three places of worship. The reason why I think it's a little more sinister is because it goes, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. No matter how great Moses and Elijah were slash are, they are not worthy of worship. Only Jesus. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, this cloud wasn't a bright cloud that came by on a sunny day. This is the Shekinah glory of God. It is what enveloped Moses. Moses' face shone when he dwelt in the presence of God. The problem was Moses had to cover himself, not because his face continued to shine, but because as he left the presence of God, he began to fade. And people kept looking at him as his shininess faded. When they built the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, God's Shekinah glory filled that temple. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, his Shekinah glory came and filled the temple. This is what it, it is God's presence in a unique fashion. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But there are times when God specially appears. There are times when God specially appears here, but he is always here. He is always in this, these four walls, one, because he's omnipresent. The other is because the scripture says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be. Well, I'm here gathered in his name, so I need one other person. And he's here uniquely. And then the scriptures also say that we are the temple of God. So God is present, but in this case, he's uniquely present. And his Shekinah glory is upon that mountain. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I'm going to stop in the middle of God's sentence. Lord, forgive me. The same thing he said at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, at his beginning of his ministry through baptism, God testified who he is. Jesus' ministry throughout his life testified who he is. His death, burial, and resurrection testified who he is. All of these are testimonies, but God, in a second time, testifies that Jesus is his son. Now, as you know, I'm a lawyer. It's great to have cooperating evidence. 
But if you've got God testifying, my case rests. You can't believe God who you're going to believe. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But then he says, listen to him. Moses, the great lawgiver, the one that the people are always talking about, Moses. And Elijah, the great prophet who raised people from the dead, who God provided water and provided food, and through the widow provided oil and flour, all these great and who was taken up in a chariot of fire, all these great things. Paul, the, God says, yeah, Moses is great, and I'm not listening who he is. And Elijah was great, and I'm not listening who he is. But there is no comparison to who Jesus is. Listen to him. And I wish that we would. We all too often want to make Jesus our best friend, and he is our friend closer than a brother. He's not our boyfriend. He's God. He is our Savior, and yes, He is, but He's Lord. And if He is, then we need to listen to Him even when we don't like the lessons. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And I think this is an honest reaction. When God speaks, not only you stop, you are frightened. I always love to hear people talk about, well, when I get to heaven, I'll tell God how great I am. No, no, you're going to be like these guys. You're going to fall face down and be petrified. The difference is, and Jesus, they fell down and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. When we are in the presence of God, we do not have to be terrified because of Jesus. Because of Jesus' blood and sacrifice has caused us to be righteous. And when we blow it, he intercedes for us. It's always and Jesus. Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Yeah, Moses was great. Elijah was great. The greatest of all is Jesus. And everything else pales into insignificance because of him. And they were coming down from the mountain. And Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, six days before, Jesus had started to show them that they, he must go to Jerusalem and be abused by the chief priests and elders and to be crucified and to be buried and be raised again. And Peter had objected to this, and Jesus made it very plain that that was not a contrary opinion, 
but a satanic one. Jesus will continue throughout to constantly refer of his death and resurrection. And he's saying, you can tell people about this, but you have to wait until then. And his disciples asked him, why didn't the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, this is a great question, and it's a legitimate one. Because they just met Elijah. And the scribes do say, because the scriptures talk about, that Elijah must come before the Messiah. And if you've ever participated in a, a uh, Passover Seder in either a Jewish custom or one that's kind of aware of Jewish customs that is a Christian one, that they will set a plate separate for Elijah, waiting for him to show up. And so, having just seen Elijah, they're going, oh, okay, wait a minute. Jesus is the Messiah. We've been hanging around for him for over a year now. We just saw Elijah. We remember back in, in uh, I would like Hebrew school, that we're waiting for Elijah to show up because he was taken up in a, in a chariot of fire, so he didn't die. So we got he's got to show up before the. So we're confused. It's a great question. And he answered and said, "Elijah is coming, and will restore all things." But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did not, but did whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. You see, Jesus is telling them, not so plainly, but plainly, Elijah's coming twice, just like the Messiah is coming twice. The spirit of Elijah came in the person of John. But Elijah is also coming again prior to the second coming. Elijah through the, the spirit of Elijah through John came to prepare the way for Jesus, and he did so, and Jesus came to do his earthly ministry to be a suffering servant and a savior. Elijah will come to set things straight so that when the Son of Man comes, he will come in all of his glory and power and rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. So he's let them in on a little insight. Elijah has two ministries, and Jesus has two ministries one now and one later. We all, generally, who are in this room, profess and confess that Jesus is Lord. And we have an opportunity, a time that we just kind of, because he's such a forgiving Savior, that we kind of just take him for granted. 
His grace will cover all the mess-ups that we do. I mean, let's face it. Some of our sins is just not, just flat-out intentional. He loves us. He'll forgive us. We're children of God, right? Hey, we have a get-out-of-hell-free card, so what does else matter? But Jesus is God. Jesus shines the Shekinah glory in himself, even though his flesh may veil it from our eyes. But I'm convinced if we have an accurate view of who Jesus is, we would not abuse his grace. We would follow him truly. We would follow him regardless of the cost. We would follow him despite what other people say. We would view him more than just a boyfriend. We would view him more than just a savior, but we would view him as almighty God himself. And he's entitled to be worshiped. This almighty God who contains all of what the God's glory can contain in whatever size he was. I suspect he was less than five foot eight. Because they were much shorter back then. But that almighty God who put the veil of flesh on, who emitted his glory, came to teach, to live, to suffer, and to die, and to be raised again on the third day. Because God the Father loved us that much. All too often, we see the love of Jesus, and it's true. But it is the love of the Father that sent him. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus so loved the world, he talked God in, the Father into sending him. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. So if you've got the God the Father who loves you enough to send Jesus, and you've got Jesus who loved the Father and you so much to come, and you've got the Spirit who only wants to talk about Jesus and to bring you to him, maybe our eyes should be open to see his majesty, to see his beauty, to see his holiness, to see his glory, and to not cheapen who he is. Oh yeah, he loves you, and he's closer than a brother, and yes, he loves you more than anyone you know. He's also majestic God. And while they were told not to reveal this incident until he had died and rose again, nothing prohibits us from 
shouting it from the rooftops. Our Lord and our God is God. And all of the people said,